Hello and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime with Kaylin and Elena, or as we are now known, K and E. I was super curious as where you were going with that. I know, I, I can tell. You were looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> but yes, so. This week's been weird only putting one episode out. I know. I don't know. It's I, been very strange. I have to say, me. I like it because it really has given me time to do a deep dive into my case. Right. But that has also just left me really frustrated with this particular <laughs> case, which I think is probably a feeling that everyone has with this case. So okay. um, that's good. But before we started with that. Oh, yeah. Um, we have been getting a lot more comments and a lot more, um, outreach from our listeners, which we very much appreciate. appreciate. And if you are okay with us using your first name, just let us know when you email us and stuff so that mm -hmm. we can reference you. Um, but Kaylin had something that she wanted to address and then I have a comment I want to say about it <laughs> because this is one of those things that, well, I'm going to let Kaylin go first. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay, so we got a review last week. Well, and you know, we actually got it before we recorded our last episode, and I didn't see it before okay. we recorded, or I would have addressed it then. And I'm not going to go too far deep into this, but in one of our episodes, uh, addiction got brought up. Yep. And I had a very different opinion than you do, and then some of our listeners mm -hmm. do. Which is fine, because guys, if you didn't know, we're allowed to have difference of opinion, and that doesn't make anybody Evil. ignorant, no. or any of these things that I have then been said to be. Which is fine. <laughs> My biggest problem with it was that I, we didn't go deep into it. No, we at didn't. At all. No. We talked for seconds about it. But I will say, this is a very, very hot button topic for people. It is also, so we're talking about addiction, just to throw that out. I we said don't, that. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. And so um, there is a lot of, what do I want to say, like bad science out there. There are a lot of bad opinions out there. And you, you said something that set off this comment. So why don't you address that? So I... I don't know. They said it was, I was offensive. I was ignorant. I um, was uneducated on it. And that is something that's actually completely far from the truth. I've been around addiction for most of my life. Um, I've suffered with it myself. I've smoked since I was 13 years old. Like I get it. Like I've been there, <laughs> but I also have a difference of opinion in it. And I'm not uneducated in the fact I actually have gone and met with a lot of addicts, whether they be friends, family, or strangers. I actually used to go to a summer camp that was surrounded around like the badness of addiction. Like I went to summer camp for like four or five years about this. Like I know what I'm talking about. And just because my opinion is different than yours doesn't mean we need to be bashing each other <laughs> yeah. is my biggest thing. And I don't want to go into it because yeah. obviously the last time we went into it, it was just not bad. Right. Right. And, and I will just say, so, you know, but, one of the things about addiction that is particularly difficult is the question of choice. Mm -hmm. And many times, you know, there, there is this question of, I don't even know how to say this, like how much choice is involved in addiction, you know? And um, 
you know, there's kind of a continuum of people being totally helpless victims of their addictive proclivities to people saying, well, you make the choice to use and it's all on you. That's kind of the continuum out there. And um, with most things, I feel like addiction is an incredibly complex issue. I don't believe it is particularly an individual issue, as we have talked about. You know, we do know that there are certain chemicals that... Um, you know, cause people to seek them out more. Some people have a stronger reaction to these chemicals than others. Like I know people in my life who have tried like every drug under the sun. They've used them recreationally and have been really, fine. yeah, and have truly never been quote unquote addicted. addicted. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like they never needed it or went through a period of their time where they were using it frequently. You know, they were party users, I guess right. is the best way to say it. Um, and then there's people that I have known that one time, boom, it was over, you know, and they just went on a slide downward. So I do understand that. I do, like I said, I believe it is a social disease as much as it is an individual disease. I think there's a lot of very, very complex interactions there that we are still working through. Right. So, um, but that said, no matter what, and I think you and I completely agree on this, whether you're an addict or not, if you are harming other people, you need to be held accountable for your actions. Right. And I think that's something that you and I do agree on. Very much so, yes. And um, so... Let's just leave it at that. And like I said, this this is I don't want to cut this off as a thread of conversation. I think by having a conversation and bringing all of the ways that we disagree about this to light, that's how you find truth. Right. And so this is a conversation to be had. I do not, like I said, I'm totally convinced that we don't really understand addiction. Because if we did, we'd be able to cure it. Do you know what I mean? It's just, for me, it's like diabetes. You know what I'm saying? Like, we understand how diabetes works. Even there, though, there's some questions out there. But we understand if we give you this much insulin, we can keep you alive and functioning as a human being. Right. We don't have anything that simplistic for addiction. And that makes, well, I, I say that tells me we don't understand it very well. Right. So, I, there. Yeah. I don't know. I think, and my biggest thing is just... I don't know, because we didn't get deep into it mm -hmm. at all is, and I guess I will take responsibility for what I said, because the way <laughs> that I said it in the very short amount of time, everything <laughs> that I said was very, it was very strong opinionated. Yes, it was very yes. strongly opinionated. Because we, that. You, neither you or I is ever opinionated. Never. That never happens. Nope, no, never. <laughs> but I don't know. I just don't feel like we were, we talked about it long enough yeah. for it to be... An issue, but again, like I said, it is very sensitive, and and we do understand. We kind of want to acknowledge the pain that many many people have suffered, either directly because of their own addictions or because of the addictions of those around them. So, right. and like we said, an addiction has played a huge part in many of our cases mm -hmm. in varying degrees. So, right. um, although I do want to say, I think, and I still believe this, that far more often addicts are victims rather than perpetrators. I think perpetrators like to use addiction as an excuse. And I think that has also muddied the waters quite a bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, 
All right, so are we ready to go back to Maryland? Uh, wait, I want to talk about what I sent you yesterday. Oh, please do. So, <laughs> I love scrolling through our county jail roster. It's oh one of gosh. my favorite things to I know, do. And I know I've seen this dude, like, all over town, man. And all over Facebook. Yes. He is on every classified page, yes. every sharing yes. the news page. He is on every yeah. possible community page on Facebook that there is. And he's a DJ, I guess, because a few years ago, um, when me, when my ex-husband and I were getting married, we were trying to find DJs and he tried so hard to be, he like emailed and emailed and Facebook messaged and Facebook messaged just a ton. And I just have always gotten like a creepy vibe from this guy. He's always one of those people that I'm just like, meh. And so I refused to let him DJ our, our wedding. Uh -huh. Thank God. <laughs> like, I don't even know. I, honestly, if you you need to post the picture in our discussion group so people can see this person. Because, again, you know, that whole don't judge a book by its cover, blah, blah, blah. No, there are some books that should be judged by their covers. Right. And, like, he's... like And here's the other thing. His mugshot doesn't show how he's normally dressed. Right. He is always filthy, mm -hmm. dirty, like... Rip, yeah, no. Well, I was on uh, our county jail roster yesterday, and he was booked in county jail a uh, day before yesterday, so on the 9th, for lewd conduct with a child under 16. Like, and I, I screenshotted it and I sent it to Elena, and I said, I knew this guy was a fucking creep. I knew it. <laughs> And honestly, he is one of those people that, you know, if you saw him in a dark alley, you would immediately cross the other side, you know, get your keys between your fingers, all those things. Right. And so while I was looking on our jail roster yesterday, I realized how many fucking sex offenders we have in jail right now. There is a ton for lewd conduct with minor under 16. There's a ton for rape. There is a ton, just so many things. And I'm like, why don't we hear about this shit? That's my thing. Well, it's posted right there. Like, you know, here's the thing with the whole, why don't we hear about this, you know, argument. We live in an era where we have instant and wider access to so much information. That's the problem. You know, there's a great expression that I heard a while about, back about trying to drink from a fire hose. And for me, that's what it feels like trying to be an informed citizen these days. Yeah. Is if uh, yeah, you just that, picture that, you know, that's I mean, funny. honestly, because if you think about it, you know, the fact that you can go onto this website, you can see the photographs, first of all, of these people. So even if you don't know them, if you ever see them on the street, you're going to know who they are. Right. You know exactly what they're in for. They haven't gone to trial yet, so these are all allegedly's, right? They've mm -hmm. just been arrested. They haven't been, you know, convicted in a court of law. So you still have to throw that allegedly out there. But, I mean, that, I never knew that growing up. Do you know, all of that just happened and maybe you heard it through word of mouth. But right. you didn't know all of this information. Well, and what I was just thinking of is, like, we... Because we covered Scott Riggs here in town mm -hmm. quite extent extensively. But then we also, around the same time that he took his plea deal, we had that man that was arrested 
for murder. Which we still, that's a case that's we don't know. That's something that I'm like, yeah. we haven't heard anything about mm-hmm. it. But I did see him on our county jail roster yesterday. And his list of charges is three pages long. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's in jail. Yes. He hasn't gone to trial yet. No. There's been no plea deal. No. But like you said, the fact that our local newspaper has reported None nothing about this. None of it. Which I have issues with our local newspaper anyway. And then we had another person approach us about a counselor here in town that we'll get some more information about okay. that. But I... I so conversely, let me just backtrack on a whole bunch of what I said, because I do feel like, especially on the local level and things that are happening right here in town, I do feel like a lot of that doesn't necessarily get talked about. Well, you see, know? that's what I was more talking about yeah. is like, why don't we here in town get oh, more yeah. news on this? Not just like right. all over coverage mm-hmm. media, just like here in town. We hear not, we don't hear about any of this. Yeah. Stuff. And I get that. Unless and yes. you do go searching yeah. for and, it. And a lot of that I have to say is local media's fault because that is the job of like a local newspaper and things like that. So we have a lot of Facebook groups here in town that like to report and then so much of that just becomes, you know, malicious gossip and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I just, it's really difficult to be an informed person and know the facts. It is. So. All right. Are we ready for yours? Yes. I think so. Here? I know. So we're going back to Maryland. Yes. We are going back to the Baltimore area. Yes. Because like I said, you know, Baltimore is full of crime <laughs> and it's had a lot of, like I said, you know, great shows centered there. So this is probably my most publicized case. Okay. Because I am doing the murder of Sister Catherine Kathy Sesnick. We talked about this a little bit last week. Yes. Between, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so in 2017, um, Netflix did a limited series called The Keepers, which went very, very in-depth with this. And there's been a lot of controversy about The Keepers. And The Keepers came out fairly shortly after... Um, Oh, gosh darn it. It just flipped my mind. The, uh, what was the pod? Oh, Serial. The podcast had come out. Oh, okay. And, you know, that was really so groundbreaking on a lot of this revisiting cold cases mm-hmm. things. And so there were a lot, at the time, there were a lot of parallels drawn between the two. There is also a podcast out there that is still going on. And I think when I checked, they had at least 39 episodes. So Jesus. they are really going deep with deep this. Deep into it, yeah. And the most recent episode that I listened to, they actually um, interviewed the medical examiner who performed her autopsy. So they are really doing a thorough job on this. It's called Out of the Darkness. Okay. And so it's also very good. And that, I have to be honest, I've only sampled, you know, a little bit here and there, but I was impressed with what I heard. So... You know, my hope is also that, you know, police are watching and listening to these things and following up on them. And definitely the keepers had a huge impact on this case because it did lead to one of the prime suspects um, that they, you know, um, exhumed his body and did some DNA testing. But I, excuse me, I'm going to tell you right up front I am just as frustrated with this case, probably more so, after 
all of the research I've been doing over the past couple weeks. Really? Yeah. Then when I started. Oh, no. I know. So I did try to put together. So one of the criticisms out there about the keepers, and I do feel like this is a valid criticism, is the timeline's all over there. It's all over the place. Right. And kind of like my Jennings 8 one. Yeah. And, and it's, it's all it's right. And I understand why sometimes that is beneficial because, you know, because the chronology doesn't always match up really well with some of the theories and the ideas that you're trying to right. bring in. And so that could be part of what is going on with the keepers. So I went through, though, and I tried to create, I guess, kind of a more sort of chronological timeline. Although, again, it's very difficult to do that sometimes. Yeah. Um, and to put as many pieces together as I could in our much shorter timeline. And right. like I said, there's a lot out there that's way deeper and this is one of those cases that I do feel like, you know, people need to go out there and do some more examination. So, Sister Catherine Kathy Sesnick was a member of the School Sisters of Notre Dame, which, by the way, was founded in Bavaria in Germany, home of the Hinterkaifeck murders that I did. Yeah. Um... The SSND was founded in 1833, and it is an order of nuns that is devoted to education. Okay. And their religious life centers on prayer, community life, and ministry. So Sister Kathy was born on the 17th of November in 1942, and she disappeared and was probably killed the same night she disappeared, although her body was not found, until later, on the 7th of November, 1969. So just shy of her 27th birthday. She was still 26. And she was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the east end of the city. She was the oldest child. She had three siblings, which <laughs> for a Catholic family isn't huge. Um, she attended Catholic schools throughout her life. And that was one thing that I was thinking about. I don't think people understand just how profound and wide a network of Catholic schools we have had in this country. Um, I would say probably now not as big as it has been in the past, but people talk a lot about the charter school movement and some of that. And so, as I was saying, Catholic schools were a big part of education. More so, I think, you know, probably geographically and then also chronologically, chronologically at various times. But, um, like, I don't think people understand how many Catholic schools we have right here mm -hmm. in the Boise area. We have six Catholic schools. Really? Yes. And they go everywhere from, that's in the, you know, elementary to junior high okay. grouping. And then most people around here know Bishop Kelly High School. Yeah. It's a private Catholic high school. And I think a lot of people maybe either don't think about that or, you know what I mean, just yeah. forget about it. But I think, we, I think I just forget. I think when I was in high school and we paid more attention, mm -hmm. I think I knew that. But yeah. you just kind of forget. Yeah. So anyway, it's a big thing. So um, anyway, Sister Kathy attended St. Mary's School. And then she went to St. Augustine High School, where she seems to have been very popular. 
She was the May Queen. She was senior class president. She was also president of the student council. So obviously she was, you know, well liked. Um, she graduated in 1960 and she was the valedictorian of her class. So she did very well. And she goes on, completes her schooling, becomes a nun, which, you know, involves several steps and several years. And she finally um, becomes a teacher at Archbishop Keough High School, which is there in Baltimore. Okay. Now at the time, it was in, it's an all girls school, so only girls go there and a lot of Catholic education is uh, divided by gender. Not all though, there's, you know, a lot of schools are, um, have both boys and girls together. But um, Archbishop Keogh, it was really considered, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word elite, but it was definitely a very good school to go to, you know. Um, and while she was there, she taught English and drama. And I could not find, and I'm sure it's out there, it was probably just me, but I didn't get the exact year she started teaching there. But given that she graduates from high school in 1960, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, she's got to go and finish four years of college. Mm -hmm. She's also working on becoming a nun. I'm going to say, you know, it probably she probably had not been teaching there very long when in 1967, another faculty member also joined Archbishop Keogh High School. And for people who are familiar with this case, this name is going to be immediately recognizable. That person is Joseph Maskell, who is a Catholic priest, but I refuse to use the honorific of father with any of these people because they are, we know that they were all sex offenders. And <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get in here. So he is a priest. He also, he has a lot of influence in the area because, I mean, just being a priest obviously makes people, you know, tends to give you a certain aura of respect, especially in this time and place. Right. Um, but in addition, he also serves as the chaplain to the Baltimore County Police the Maryland National Guard, and the Maryland State Police. Hmm. So think about those organizations, hmm. right? And how many ins that gives him right there. Right. He also has a brother who is a well-known police officer in the area. Yep. So not only does he have this official connection as chaplain, but of course he's friendly with these people. There are personal relationships, <clears throat> and that's going to become part of this story. So, from the get-go, you know, when Maskell arrives, he had been sent there from St. Clement Church after complaints that he had abused an eighth-grade boy. <sighs> so, of course, the Catholic Church, in all of its wisdom, is like, we'll send him to an all-girls school. And, you know, talking about this from the here and now, some listening to this that doesn't know about the horrors of the Catholic sex scandals that went on right. and the abominable, disgusting way they dealt with it, which was 
to move these priests around like figures on a chessboard and to protect them. Right. Which I do not understand in any way, shape, or form. And I think I'm... it. I, I can't even... Okay. <laughs> and it just... It's so thoroughly disgusting and awful and... You know, I I, uh, I can't even go there. So There was actually a case uh, that I just looked into a little bit. I listened to a podcast on it and did a little tiny bit of research um, about a priest who had been murdered in the church. And originally they tried, and by they I mean law enforcement, tried to put it off as like, he was part in like molesting or the uh -huh. sexual assaults of children. Oh. And the cops at first like was like, oh, he got caught doing this. So they killed him for it. When in reality, he ended up, this priest that was murdered ended up being. Um, An informant? Almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that ties into this case a little bit too. So <clears throat> anyway, so um, this dude, Maskell and Sister Kathy, they must have started fairly close in time at this school. Um, we do know, like I said, that Maskell abused girls at Archbishop Keogh from 1967 to 1975. So even after Sister Cathy's murder, um, at least 40 to 50 girls have come forward and testified oh. that they were his victims. He would abuse these girls, not just on his own, mind you, but with other members of the clergy, oh by the way. God. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so thoroughly disgusting. Ugh. Um, you know, and this just brings in that whole idea of, you know, men being in power. And like I said, that I often say the patriarchy is poison idea. And, you know, to this day, Organizations like the Catholic Church, the the Mormon Church, there are other churches out there. They are allowed to discriminate against women and deny them positions of power and authority because of their quote-unquote religious beliefs. Because in the United States, women are not officially recognized in the Constitution. That is what the ERA amendment was about and some people have probably been hearing a little bit about the ERA amendment again in the news just recently because with Virginia flipping from being a Republican-run uh, state to now being a Democratic-run state, there has been a lot of talk that Virginia is going to put the ERA up for vote again and that they will this time pass it and then it will have to you know, continue on to become a constitutional amendment. Of course, the lovely Department of Justice, which we currently had, has already said, oh, no, it's expired. That's not a thing. So we'll see what happens there. But just this idea that we still have organizations in this country that are allowed to say to women, mm, sorry, honey, you can't have any this position of authority and power. Because, you know, God says you got them ovaries in that uterus, so mm, you can't do this. It's so also <laughs> disgusting and just rage-inducing to me. So, um, yeah, and I don't care about your religion. Like, I just don't. 
I just don't. That is the stupidest thing ever. I and agree. I'm done with it. And I'm so sick and tired of, oh, but women get to be mothers. The day that mothers have as much power as priests and bishops and presidents of other churches or whatever, whatever your little denomination calls these people, okay, then we'll talk. But we both know that that's a bunch of crap and we're not going there. <laughs> so this abuse at um, Archbishop Keogh <clears throat> High School, like I said, was so awful that it involved other men. There was another priest named Neil Magnus that we know that was involved. Some girls reported that they were actually prostituted out to police officers, hence that connection. Well, <clears throat> yeah, this Neil Magnus worked at Archbishop Keogh. Get this, he was the director of religious studies. Huh. Yeah. Um, there was a man named Christian Richter who was the local gynecologist. And also, yeah, I know, I like your, your, the look you're giving me there. And he was also involved in this. You know, if this sounds sexist, super sorry, but I'm already offending people, so why the fuck not? Yeah. Well, I am too. It creeps me the fuck out. And when I was pregnant, I had I had a dude, gynecologist, is one of my, one of my mm -hmm. doctors when I was pregnant. It creeps me out. It does. I don't know if it's just like a, and this is the same way. Well, like, and, and at this time period, I mean, you were lucky to find a woman who was a gynecologist. I mean, women had only been allowed to go to medical school in many states for a very limited period of time, you know? It's just creepy to me. Yeah. It is the perfect cover job for these sex offenders. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. Dude, gynecologists freak me out. Yes. All right, so we are going to take a quick break. And we're back. So, like I said, there are some gaps here. And I'm hoping that some of these questions, like there's more answers out there. And I just couldn't, you know, just didn't have the time to find some of them. But for the two months before she was murdered, um, Sister Kathy and her roommate, another name, uh, sorry, another nun named Sister Russell, had been involved in what was just described as an experiment where instead of teaching at Archbishop Keogh, they were teaching at a local public school. Now, I could not find who instigated this experiment, you know, why they were doing it. Mm -hmm. It does seem to me it could pro be very problematical to have nuns working in a public school just just because of the optics of it. You know what I mean? Right. I'm not saying that they were necessarily teaching anything religious, you know, violating First Amendment stuff, but I really wanted to know more about that, like exactly how that came about, why it was coming about, and so on. Um, we do know that Sister Russell, who was, like we said, Sister Kathy's roommate, was completely traumatized by her murder. From what I could find, she refuses, has never talked about it. At the time, they said she was so traumatized she couldn't even answer simple questions. They didn't say wouldn't, but couldn't. And I found that telling. 
And she eventually left the order and married and had two children. So, yeah. Um, so, of course, in the Keepers, the storyline they developed there is that many students liked Sister Kathy. She was young. She was attractive. You know, she taught English and drama. There's the great meme that's been floating around about you can always tell how sad somebody was in high school by how closely they bonded to their English teacher. Um, <laughs> and look at me now. <laughs> They grow up and have a podcast with them. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> That's so Isn't that funny. the best? But I think it's funnier because it's like kind of accurate. It is kind of true, right? <laughs> um, but they say, you know, that a lot of girls probably confided in her and possibly maybe that's why she was moved. Although... You know, why this move took place a full two months and then she's murdered and she doesn't say, you know what I mean? There's a right. lot of holes here. So, at any case, we do know that the evening before the murder, there is a story that Maskell and Magnus, the two Catholic priests teaching it, Archbishop Keogh, who are later you know, proven to be members uh, or people who are abusing, sexually abusing these girls, that they entered Sister Kathy and Sister Russell's apartment without knocking. Now, there's an anonymous woman who claims that she was in the apartment at the time that they had been discussing the sexual abuse and what to do about it. And this woman, this anonymous woman, they talk about her and the keepers, uh, claims the next day that Maskell threatened her with a gun, and he was known to carry a gun, so, and that he threatened to kill her loved ones if she ever spoke up. I. Do we have any, like, guesses on who this anonymous woman is? No. Is it, the, is it her roommate? Is it Sister Russell? No, it's supposed to be a third woman who was there visiting them. Okay. So, I don't know. And, yeah, so. But here's what we know about the next night, uh, the 7th of November, 1969, which is the day she disappears, and she was probably murdered at the same time. So at 11.30 a.m., she tells a student that she's going to be going shopping because her sister had recently become engaged, and she was going to buy her a gift, an engagement gift. And... From everything I could see, she was very excited for her sister, very happy about this engagement, and so on. So at 7 p.m. that night, she goes to the Edmondson Village Shopping Center, and she was going to buy this gift at a store called Hex. At 8.30 p.m., and this, this is less certain than those other two facts, um... An airline attendant says that she remembers seeing Kathy in a parking lot. Okay. okay. So there is that story, you know, so we kind of have this timeline of that. But at 8.30 p.m., she's still around, basically. Right. Um, we don't know what time this was. The time is in question. But a woman named Mary Spence says that she remembers hearing a man yelling in the direction of Kathy's apartment. So over near where Kathy lived, that she could hear this guy yelling. Okay. We do know that by 11 p.m. that night, Sister Russell, Sister Kathy's roomie, is worried. 
and she calls Father Jerry Koob, and he and Brother McKeon drive to Catonsville, which is the area of uh, Baltimore where they live. Okay. Now, this Jerry Koob character is also somewhat maybe shady or questionable, and I'm not going to go into a lot of that stuff. If you watch The Keepers, and there's a lot of information out there that he's probably not the most reliable person out there. Okay. okay? So, at... 1 a.m. that night, though, and this is pretty well established, Jerry Coob says that they should call the cops. You know, she they don't know where she is. And so at 1.30 a.m., the police arrive, and they describe Sister Kathy. She's now technically a missing person. Okay. So I will say that that's one quote-unquote good thing about this case. You and I have often talked about how, you know, too often they're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. But I think given the fact she's a nun... You know, she has a very pretty established routine. Right. They immediately, you know, go off on this. Now, at 4 a.m., this Pete McKeon and Jerry Coob decide to, like, go outside and take a walk, whatever, for whatever reason, and they see Kathy's car. It is parked halfway up on a driveway and halfway in the street, so it's not properly parked. You know, it looks like somebody just kind of halfway drove it up on the curb and left. It's muddy. It's 50 feet from her normal parking spot in front of her apartment building. And they say that it had to it had to have arrived in that spot after 11.30 uh, p.m. Or Jerry Koob and this brother McKeon would have seen, seen it yeah. when they arrived, right? So now that the car is found, they change this case and they now classify it as an abduction okay okay um, more cops are called in they examine the car they can see that it's muddy it's been driven off road um, but they find nothing of use in it of course they don't No. but what is weird is that Kathy had apparently bought a box of bakery rolls and they are just in perfect condition on the floor of the front passenger side of her car. So, but anyway, and of course, remember, this is 1969. You know, there's no DNA, da-da-da-da-da. Right. What is kind of interesting is because her car is found and it's muddy and all of that, there's an immediate, that, that seems to be the only thing that they check out forensically. We have no evidence that they went through her apartment and gave it a forensic once over. You would think that they would. Not that I can find any evidence of. So, um, and then nothing happens except a short time later, a 20 year old woman named Joyce Malecki is found murdered. And she is found very close to where on January 3rd, 1970, so nearly two months after she disappears, a hunter and his son are out by this informal landfill, which tells me it's like an illegal dump. Like, you know, right. maybe people are just dumping things there without the proper permits or whatever. But this is where Sister Kathy's body will be found. Now, in the Keepers, there is... A connection. They try to make a connection to Joyce Malecki 
and her, because she is found so close, right? I'm going to come back to that. Okay. So, obviously, um, her body, Sister Kathy's body, you know, it's been two months. From all accounts, it sounds like her body was probably outside, outdoors the whole time. And even though the weather is fairly cold, it's still damp. And, yeah. you know, there is some decomposition that happens. So... Her autopsy is performed by a medical examiner, a German man named Werner Spitz, who, by the way, is still alive. And the most recent, um, uh, what do I want to say? The most recent episode of Out of the Darkness, that podcast, mm -hmm. they interview him. And he's That's hysterical. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, he determines that she dies of an intracerebral hemorrhage which is a fancy way of saying she had a brain bleed from a fractured skull and that she would, she suffered a blow to the left temple with a blunt instrument. And by the way, your temple is the thinnest bone in your skull. Huh. Yeah. So, and it is very, you know, if your skull is fractured, what very, the reason that a skull fracture is so dangerous is the brain then swells and often it starts to bleed inside mm -hmm. and there's nowhere for the blood to go. Right. So it just causes all this pressure and that's usually what kills you. So what happened? That's the big question that we still don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'll try to get there. So the morning after Sister Kathy goes missing on the 8th of November, 1969, Okay. It is reported that two young men come home with blood on their shirts, on their arms, and their hands. Now, where's one, home? I want to know where home is. That's okay. So <laughs> this is where this also gets a little muddy. Yes. So one of these young, these men is a guy named Billy Schmidt. Okay. His apartment is like ten steps away from Sister Kathy's. Oh, how convenient. And Sister Russell's apartment. How fucking convenient However, he's, he's a young man. Apparently, he had been kicked out of his home by his very Catholic family because he's gay. And, of course, in the 1960s, that's a no-no. Right. So, take all of this with a grain of salt. But this is also, these men are also very heavily indicted in the keepers, Okay. So it's he and a guy named Edgar Davidson. And like I said, both of these men have had their own, have had family members who came forward and said that they're involved. So in addition, Billy Schmidt smoked Salem cigarettes and there was a, apparently a Salem cigarette butt that was found near Sister Kathy's body. Okay. But again, Salem at the time, it's not like this is some, you know, ooh, super rare, you know, yeah. exotic cigarette brand. So the other thing is that Kathy's body is found where it's found. It's kind of like a halfway point between the Schmidt home, the family home, and their business. Again, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Um... So Billy Schmidt has this nephew named Brian and Brian is the source, the big source for a lot of this speculation as well. Now, 
The other dude, and here's what's weird. So the other guy, um, whose name I just forgot, Edgar Davidson, apparently it's his first wife who also says that he is probably involved in this case. But then, I don't know, there's just not, like Billy Schmidt seems to like shoulder the most of it. And probably because of this nephew of his named Brian, who gave a recorded interview to the police. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. Is this case solved? Are no. You... Okay. So, Brian... Have you ever done an unsolved case? I don't know if I have. Well, other than some of my axe murders, I don't think so. So, Brian claims that he was a boy at the time. What that means, we don't know. It's like he never, I don't know what his age was. And he says that, you know, like we said, Billy lived across the hall there from Sister Kathy. And this is where it's weird. So, I don't know why Brian is over at Billy's apartment. And then Billy's like, no, you need to wait here in my apartment. I got to go across the hall. And so he leaves Brian in his in his own, in Billy's apartment, and he's across the hall, and Brian gets bored, and he goes over to Sister Kathy's apartment looking for his Uncle Billy, and his memory is that Billy rushes him out of Kathy's apartment and back to Billy's apartment and makes him stay there again, and then he calls a guy named Skippy, because that's helpful. Right. And Skippy arrives and he has black hair and a mustache. And like the wolf in Pulp Fiction, he's going to help Billy clean up. Now, some sources also said that supposedly Billy and Skippy were dating for a couple. Mm. So Skippy arrives. They go to Kathy's. They come out with the ever ubiquitous rolled up carpet. And they tell Brian, hey, we got to go put this in the car. We'll be right back. And like I said, why the hell do you have Brian there? If you're cleaning up some sort of a murder scene and he's, quote unquote, a boy, I, I don't know. Right, like, know. why is he there? Yeah, it's so weird. So then Bill and Skippy all get in the car. I'm assuming Brian's in the car, too. And they go pick up Uncle Bobby. Supposedly, I'm assuming that's Billy's brother. Bobby brings a 22. They go behind the grandma's house that what's called, I guess, like the Schmidt family home. Okay. And there's a woods area there. And then, of course, that's where Sister Kathy is eventually found. And Bobby takes Brian off to the side to shoot a twenty-two in the woods while Billy and Skippy go over and take the rug out of the car. Because when you're there to hide a dead body, you want to be shooting a gun to arouse suspicion. Like, none of this makes right. sense. So... And then Brian supposedly asks his Uncle Bobby why they don't just throw the carpet, you know, the rolled up carpet, right where they're shooting because that's a trash pile. And then he says that he doesn't remember a murder or nothing, just this rolled up carpet and all this other stuff. And then after all this is over, Uncle Billy tells Brian, I'll beat you to death and hurt you if you ever say anything about this. And I wish you guys could all see Kaylin's face right now because that's how my brain looked when I was listening to all of this. So then family members go on to say that Billy Schmidt is obsessed with Sister Kathy's murder. Again, she lives across the hall, like 10 paces away. I would probably be obsessed with my neighbor's yeah. murder too. And um, 
then they say that he always talks about the nun in the attic. And then about five months after Kathy's murder, Billy commits suicide. And supposedly, and again, I'm not sure exactly how well documented this is either, the family supposedly finds a mannequin dressed as a nun in the attic of the family home. Hmm. So somebody has a nun fetish or, like, yeah, this... It just doesn't make any fucking sense. I know, I know. So, and again, Brian keeps saying that, you know, this murder happened before and that they were just cleaning up. Right. And so, you know, the timeline that gets kind of put forth is that... Maskell had returned to the apartment with his gun. Maybe he hits her in the head with the gun. And then for, I don't know how the hell or why exactly, he calls Billy and Skippy in to help clean up. Right. But that they were cleaning it up. So, I'm not convinced. It makes no sense. Now, here's the thing. So, the Keepers does lead to, like I said, Maskell being... Um, dug up, they do DNA testing to see if it matches any of the DNA stuff they are able to get from. I guess they they were able to get some DNA from the cigarette butt okay. and maybe some other things, and Maskell's DNA doesn't match. Of so, not. I do want to say this. Maskell is a monster. He deserves to burn in hell. Everyone associated with him, everyone who helped cover him up, deserves to burn in hell. Right. Okay. Um, another thing about the, the keepers is it brings forward two women, uh, Jean Wenner and Teresa Lancaster. These are the two women who kind of spearhead coming forward in 1992 about Maskell and what he had been up to. You know, that brings forward a lot of these other victims. And this, this is, you know, 1992 when they're trying to get this story going and, of course, the huge break nationally in all of this stuff about the, you know, the, or, the very well-organized cover-up of the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church is broken by the Boston Globe in 2001. Mm-hmm. And there's the movie Spotlight that does a great job of you know, showing all of that and all the work those people did. So, like I said, there's a lot here because if nothing else, Sister Kathy's murder brings out, albeit not till much later, a lot of these horrific, insidious things that were going on in the school. Right. Um, How exactly tied and connected these things are, I have to tell you, I still can't say that I know because... The story I just told you, this timeline I just laid out, does not make sense to me. Yeah. You know, there are far more questions than answers involved in it. And like I said, there's stuff all over the internet on this. There's a huge, you know, there are huge Reddit threads. Um, you know, you can find lots more information about this. And then I want to come back to Joyce Malecki's murder. Now, one of the things about Joyce Malecki that's pointed out out is that supposedly she looked very similar to Jean Wenner, who's one of the sexual abuse victims. And one of the things that Jean Wenner does claim is that before Sister Kathy's body was found, that Maskell took her to it and showed it to her and said, 
this is what happens to people who say bad things. The right. issue with this is that Jean Wenner also claims, and she, she says this, that this is a recovered memory. And we know that recovered memories are very, very controversial. Right. And I'm not even going to get into it because we don't have enough time here to cover all of the information about that. Right. And I'm not going to say that she's lying. I'm not going to say that she's wrong. I'm not going to say that this did or did not happen. I don't know. Right. I can't. I just can't say anything more than that. I will tell you, I do not believe that Joyce Malecki's murder is connected in any way, even though she's found nearby. First of all, this is a wooded area with a you know with people throwing garbage. Of course, bodies are going to get dumped here. Um, her whole murder is so different. She's found with her ha hands bound. She had fought and struggled with her attacker. She was stabbed like 15 times, but very, very shallow. So it seems like the killer was very hesitant. She did have one stab wound in her neck that was more severe, but still was not enough to kill her. That they, I, It seems like she drowned in the stream where she was dumped. Um, so I just don't see that that is a connection. Right. The thing we do know is that Maskell's a monster. His associates are monsters. The Catholic Church as a whole, everybody involved with the sexual abuse of these children and the cover-up of it should burn in hell. We don't know who killed Sister Kathy. I don't know that we will ever know. That's insane. I don't know how directly connected these two things are. I'm still not convinced, right. I have to say. I'm very confused. Right. And I'm really frustrated, and I don't ever want to do another cold case like this again. <laughs> This is why you don't story. do cold cases. I know. Because they make you angry. They do make me and angry. And see, I kind of knew like a tiny, tiny bit of this, but not so much, I guess. I only watched like the first episode of The Keepers and then I kind of fell off of it, I mm -hmm. guess. But. Well, and like I said, I don't want to bad mouth it. I do have some issues with it. And like I said, part of it was the way they structure the story is very, very peaceful. And there's a whole lot of stuff I know that I haven't talked about. So, you know, get on our discussion group, email us, all that good stuff. But um, because it's so peaceful, like I said, I really tried to put everything together into this more kind of chronological. As this well is, as possible. And it doesn't make sense. Mm -mm. It just doesn't hold together. When you talk about these things in random spotty ways, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe it's easier to make those connections. But when you try to string all this together in a chronological order, I just, it just don't. Doesn't. I yeah. don't see it. Yeah, no, I get that. So <sighs> that's that's my Maryland case. So next week we're going to Mississippi. Woohoo! Which I'm already done with my case. I know I'm so, so excited. excited. Um, so we're going to Mississippi next week. If you make sure you go like our like and follow our Twitter page, our Instagram page. Um, if you have any suggestions, you can email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any stories or anything that you wanted to talk to us about, um, you can also email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com for those. Let us know if you do want us to talk about it in a podcast. Yeah. Let us know if we're allowed to use your name or not. Yes. So that we... Just your first name. We'll never give away your full identity. Right. But we just want to make sure you're comfortable being mentioned. And I also want to say, like, we, we love the love. We so appreciate our supporters. 
Um, and we also really appreciate the criticism and the disagreement. And we will always address those because like I said, I feel like that's how we get from point A to the truth, right. you know, and we really do appreciate those things. We want to have informed and respectful discussions about these issues and we appreciate everyone who brings those up. Yeah. So thank you. Um, so yeah, we're in Mississippi next week. And if you're listening on an Apple product, make sure you like any product. Us. And if you have the option on your platform. platform to rate and or comment, please, please do so because we love it. Right. Thank you. So until next week, see you then.